Welcome, listener. I very much appreciate you tuning into this humble and amazing podcast called The Documenteers. I am your host, Bob Sham, and each week on this free internet pod program, myself and an enthusiast discuss and rate a different documentary in a capering and softly facetious fashion, though I'd hardly call it frivolous. Welcome to the show. We're excited to get to a documentary that we've been meaning to watch since this podcast began, but just couldn't get to. All February long, we will be making up some homework and hitting up some acclaimed docs that we might have missed in 2018. To start the month off, Angela and Bob discuss the story of Ruth Bader Ginsburg in RBG by Julie Cohen and Betsy West. An homage to the great dissenter herself, the Supreme Court Justice, whose already respected life has exploded into a true pop culture sensation. Inspired by and in connection to the book The Notorious RBG, a nod to the rapper Notorious B.I.G., and pretty much a humorous crossover connection to the Justice and the rapper, both from Brooklyn. This episode is almost an homage to Biggie, as it is a story about Ruth's influential career. You'll just have to listen on and know what I'm talking about. Before we go into all of that, let me just say that next week, on the podcast, we hit up another documentary that's dominating many critics' lists for best documentary of last year. Eldridge brings an assist and hopefully some tissues to the devastating reality presented in Bing Liu's hard slice of Rust Belt life, discussing Minding the Gap. You can find this on your cousin's Hulu next week on The Documenteers. As of this recording, I still have yet to know what documentaries have been nominated for the Academy Awards. That will be airing at the end of this month. I'm going to wager a guess that RBG will get a nomination nod. And if I'm wrong, well, guess what? Bobby's a dumbass. I can't wait for that night when the Academy Awards are about to start. And I'll be doing anything but watching it. Hell, I'll probably be editing this podcast during it. Maybe playing some video games, staying up into the evening, doing absolutely anything but watching the Academy Awards. Then I'll finally go to bed at an unreasonable hour, wake up, Look at my phone to see what documentary won the award and say, huh, kept you long enough. Let's move on to the episode where you get to hear me talk some more. Our film, RBG, by Julie Cohen and Betsy West. Documenteerspodcast.com and keep on docking. Here is a motion picture film. A thousand feet, 16,000 separate photographs. Let's tidy up this tangle of film by putting it on a reel. I ask no favor for my sex. All I ask of our brethren is that they take their feet off our necks. Angelo, we are with this episode, we're starting our month of some acclaimed and much talked about documentaries in 2018. Yes. yes. That we might have missed. In 2018, you mentioned this a lot. When this was in the theater, you're like, I want to see this. Mm-hmm. I want to see this. I want to see this. Yep. And I said, I'm the man of the house. <laughs> I don't understand why that's so funny. <laughs> and we are going to go watch Avengers Infinity War. Instead of this very important. Mm-hmm. movie about this woman who frankly would be disappointed in me if I listened to you if you gave me such a decree. This movie was often moving at times. I mean, I think the stuff she some of the stuff she did was very important. Absolutely. That's what I mean. Absolutely. I mean, as far as the history of it and the changes that she helped to bring about, and that's why it's important because some people don't 
know that. I didn't know a lot of this stuff. Me either. Especially a lot of the stuff in the history. Yeah. When she was taking cases to the Supreme Court. And that stuff was very interesting and yeah. pretty inspiring. Like, I found that stuff to be the most inspiring. Definitely. Now, Ruth Bader Ginsburg. We're talking about the film RBG by mm-hmm. Betsy West and Julie Cohen. It was a big to-do. They, You know, they called 2018 the year of the documentary. Did they really? I mean, I just, at the end of the year, I was looking at what are a lot of, like, critics' picks for documentaries. Right? Yeah. And this was showed up on a few lists, but not as many as you might think. You know, some real good ones came out last yeah. year. And also, 2018, it's appropriate they call it the year of the documentary because that's when the Documenteers podcast premiered, shoved in the faces of the internet. So I think it works. I think it's perfect. Thank you, whoever they are. Yeah, they I feel like I'm very timely. It was the year of the documentary and the first year of the documentaries. I think it works out well. I love it. But they call it that because there were multiple documentaries that made more than $5 million at the box office. Won't you be my neighbor? That was a big one. I think Three Identical Strangers did really well. Mm -hmm. Free Solo. RBG was one. Uh, I think Fahrenheit 11.9 for a documentary made some decent money. But a lot of places would call that like a failure. Because the biggest selling documentary is Fahrenheit 9-11. So every time Michael Moore doesn't hit that, it's called a failure. But that doesn't make any sense. Fahrenheit 11-9 actually probably did better than like his last three documentaries. So much discussion I read around that movie was around like the budget and the earnings. But as documentary fans, we don't really expect that much anyway. A $5 million draw... Also, I noticed that especially RBG was in the theaters for a while, as was Three Identical Strangers. Mr. Rogers, we watched that like two and a half months. It had been in the theaters like two and a half months. Free Solo premiered in October and was in our local Belcourt Theater up to the new year. Yeah. Old school. Remember when we were kids and Forrest Gump was a hit and it was in the theaters for like half a year? Yeah. It's not really like that anymore with these big movies. They they want to push them out. They want... They make their ticket sales up top. It sticks around for maybe a month and a half. And then they want to pump out the DVDs. But with these documentaries, when they hit, when a documentary becomes big, like Won't You Be My Neighbor and RBG, that it's like old school movies where theaters try to keep it in there for a long time. Well, yeah, but we're also thinking too about the theater that you're talking about that still had those movies playing was the independent theater. Not necessarily the ones that are trying to make those big bucks. Belcourt's not going to play Avengers Infinity War. But also, there was another movie. It's not a documentary. Sorry to Bother You by Boots Riley. Oh, yeah, yeah. And uh, that actually was, I think it, that was also due to word of mouth. Yeah. I think that movie started off at the Belcourt because it was like a very indie flick. And then there was some word of mouth about it. And so when I went to go see it, it ended up being thrown into some of the other more bigger like multiplex yeah. theaters in the area. Yeah. So that movie too also stuck around for a lot longer than what movies that make a lot more money than that did. Something going on right now where obviously those big blockbusters are still going to hit it, right? They're still going to bring in people and they're still going to make a lot of money off that. Think about how many like good movies there were last year. I don't I don't know. What's a good movie that came out last year? Black Panther. Black Panther was great. I mean, this is just in big budgets. Yeah, yeah. But I also just mean like on the regular at the theater. So if there's something like a Mr. Rogers documentary that is consistently putting butts in seats, you'd be stupid to take it out. Yeah. Because there's not something coming up right behind it all that often. 
Well, the best movies we saw, I mean, I liked Black Panther. I liked Infinity War. I liked Mission Impossible Fallout. Mission Impossible was fun. But these weren't our, we enjoyed these a lot, but these weren't our favorite movies. No, no, no. Quality is getting recognized, which is awesome. Yeah, but just at a very micro level. Yeah. I'm not sure what my point is. I don't know either. <laughs> Year of documentary. But this is week one of our catching up. I'm really excited to talk about a lot of the movies that we're going to talk about this month. And RBG was at the top of that list because it got a lot of word of mouth. And we are, we're sorry we couldn't get to it for 2018. There's still plenty of interesting looking documentaries that we're not going to be able to get to that came out in 2018. Yeah. Because... I don't know if you heard. It's the year of the documentary. Um, <laughs> we'll catch up eventually. But this one, this one, uh, RBG, we're all over this one. Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Yes. They call her the great dissenter. There's a big buzz around her. Yeah. There's just, now she's always kind of been respected. For those who are aware of feminist history, she's always been a big deal. Mm-hmm. Within the last three years, she has kind of a, taken this next level in terms of fame. She's almost become like, I'm a little cautious of it, this superstar kind of status. Yeah, I think it's just with the political climate right now. And I mean, obviously, we'll get into like the history of how she got to where she is today. But she's found herself being one of the most liberal people on a fairly conservative Supreme Court. And so a lot of times she is not agreeing with the decisions that are coming down in the last few years, particularly. And so she, she has no issue saying exactly how she feels in these dissents. And she's making very public the fact that she thinks that mistakes are being made, speaking out against these things that a lot of us do find appalling, these sort of answers that are coming down from the Supreme Court from time to time, right? And so it's sort of a time when anybody who will speak out against sort of where what seems to be becoming the new norm as far as like a more conservative or like taking away some rights that we used to have or less protections than people used to have. You kind of glom onto that person who's going to sort of be your like superhero stand up for your rights person. And that's what they, but, they, but that's what I mean. Like I said, superhero, because I was thinking of this image they made of her as a superhero. That's what they made her. She is really, when you come right down to it, the closest thing to a superhero I know. But that, that statement you made, I mean, a lot of people feel that way. Yeah. And the reason why I'm so cautious about that perspective mm-hmm. is because that rea- everything is so reactionary, everything is so entrenched. You could argue of what level of power she's in, mm-hmm. but she's historically she has not been as reactionary as the times are. As it shows her career, her being a very patient, yes, and very diplomatic person, and it's just in the last few years when she's going on book tours or just speaking tours. Where she seems to be throwing out a lot more of uh, opinions, at least outside of the setting of, you know, the Supreme Court setting. I just think that's also another aspect of this. It seemed to sort of, all of that seemed to sort of spawn off of this comment that she made negative towards Trump. And everyone was really shocked that Mm. she spoke out. She's a Supreme Court justice. You really shouldn't speak out publicly against things like that. And from that, it kind of snowballed into this whole thing. Let's clarify that. During the campaign in 2016 she was asked about the trump campaign and she verbalized that she thought donald trump would be a terrible president and it's a statement that we can agree with sure and a lot of people were like whoa because it's not a statement that you want 
a Supreme Court justice to make no. because those need to be the most impartial people. I, I understand the shock. Yeah. It is hard not to react in these times. Mm -hmm. And I mean, I know Ruth Bader Ginsburg is only human, but she's in a an exceptional position. Yes. So she has to behave exceptionally. And I understand her feeling about it. Mm -hmm. You got to have that decorum because you are in a position of power. You know, obviously she came out and apologized about that. Mm. She said that she should have never said it. As far as fuck Trump, we'll say that Yeah, all day. fuck Trump. Fuck, fuck Trump. Him. Fuck Trump. All like, day, every day. I'm not but against it. But people are paying more attention. She's in the That's the biggest thing. Her ideology is in a minority. Yes. Because the Supreme Court seems to be growing more conservative, mm -hmm. despite the fact that the country does not seem as conservative as the Supreme Court. No, but the politicians do. Yeah, which is bizarre. I mean, I believe that the country is as a whole, like, left to center. Yeah. It's just that not a lot of people are mobilized to go out to the polls or do any, or just completely disillusioned. Mm -hmm. And and I'm a guy, I'm someone that votes, but I'm also someone who understands disillusion a great sure. deal. Sure. I mean, it's my belief that a Supreme Court justice should have a term limit. Mm. I think a Supreme Court justice should get a, a good 10 years. You get 10 years in that seat, and you're gone. That way, we don't get stuck and that way it's not entrenched into this certain type of Supreme Court as the country progresses. And it gives it a better opportunity for the Supreme Court to reflect the changing will of the country. As far as Ginsburg being outs outspoken about specifically candidate issues and her position of power, I do agree with a lot of her critics that because of her exceptional job and nature, that she shouldn't comment on that. Right. Also, Anthony Scalia would do fucking book tours and stuff. and But he was also every much like this right-wing hero Yeah. to the conservatives. Yeah. And apparently they were best friends. Yeah, that part was crazy. I, I did not know that. But Scalia's son actually talked about how they were like really good friends. They would go to the opera together. They like were featured in an opera together. They went on, they wrote an elephant together once. She was the kind of person who, who honestly, like this is, we need a little bit more of this in general, I think in this country. I mean, it was shocking to me that they were such good friends, but I've been thinking about this a lot since the movie. Like that's that sort of being able to recognize that someone across the aisle is still a person, like you're a person and has a family and is doing a job and is doing what they believe in. And you don't have to agree with them. But you do need to find a way to work with them. I understand there's certain issues where it's just completely exhausting. I mean, sometimes you're just arguing basic human rights. Mm -hmm. But we're progressive liberals who grew up in the South. Yeah. And a lot of progressive liberals who grew up in the Midwest, they had to figure out how to live alongside people that often would just dismiss basic human rights. Yeah, which is something that we've been learning to navigate since we understood that people have differences of opinion. Yeah, our whole lives yeah. as kids. Yeah. Which kind of, I feel like, honed me, made me the stronger liberal that I am today. Mm -hmm. That I don't think I could could have been in an environment where everyone thought the exact same way that I did. Yeah. Well, let me go back to if a Supreme Court justice was limited to a 10-year term. Yeah. And that was existed when Ginsburg first went into the Supreme Court in the early 90s. Would we have this movie about her now? Mm. Now, what she did in the history of the women's movement, I feel like does merit a documentary alone. I feel like it'd be an American Experience episode on PBS. Yeah. 
but this movie is writing just it got in right on time on this next level fandom that's surrounding her right now well absolutely these two women who made this film are young women betsy west and julie cohen yeah this completely and they're in the documentary like this completely came out of the notorious bi rbg sorry the notor the comparison to the notorious big it was all a dream i used to read word up magazine salt and pepper and heavy d up in the limousine hanging pictures on my wall every saturday rap attack mr magic molly mall which she had some really funny comments about at some point yeah. that she she said that people asked her like do you mind being compared to the notorious big and she's like no we actually have a lot in common i am a brooklynite born and bred I let my tape rock till my tape pop Smoking weed and bamboo Sipping on private stock Way back when I had the red and black lumberjack With the hat to match She didn't grow up wealthy Same part of town or something yeah, I don't know But she grew up with like Stern expectations from her parents Yeah, yeah If she had only had a 10 year term Which I actually I super agree with that I think it's difficult because there were there were people who in um before Obama was out of office Asked her to retire People were basically saying You should retire like, yeah. you're being selfish if you don't. Because if you don't retire, then what if you die during the next term and Trump gets to give us a new Supreme Court justice? And she didn't want to quit because her thing is she wants to keep doing her job until she can no longer do it. I understand that. I didn't I, I didn't agree with people taking that perspective. No one should have said that to her. That's not the way it works. And that's not okay. What I'm saying is if if we got it the way you said with like 10 year terms, then it gives you the opportunity for this rotating, these rotating justices who would be appointed by all sorts of different people through time, not like these people who've been sitting there for 30 years. Mm. Like that's ridiculous. It's like, this is a weird comparison to make, but it's like the people who work for like the MPAA, they are on there for life apparently. Like it's people who've been there forever and have like these old views of not what's like Current. You, you see this. You don't have current views. <laughs> you see this all throughout so many aspects of America. From you mentioned the MPAA. That's a great example. Mm -hmm. Also, establishments that educate educators. Ugh. We're talking about like people who haven't taught, who are barely taught in their whole life, haven't even taught in the 21st century, who are teaching educators how to teach in the 21st century. Yeah, that kind of shit is a big problem. Yeah, and the thing is. It's frustrating. I feel like we could go off. I know. Like, so much. We open up in this movie. We're just now getting to the opening. We're going to burn through a lot real <laughs> yeah, quick. Yeah, real quick. Today. I'm ready. I'm going to burn through a lot right now. Okay. But we see her working out. I wish she was listening to some Biggie while she was working that out. That would have been be cool. Live from Bedford Stuyvesant, the loudest one. Representing BK to the fullest. Gats are bullet. Bastards ducking when Big B bucking. Chicken heads be clucking in my back room fucking. I am a Brooklynite. Born and bred. And you know when um, Brett Kavanaugh was sworn in and he mm. had that like, uh, that prep boy uh, breakdown after being questioned. Because he, and he blamed it all on like a, uh, a, uh, a scheme by the Clintons. And it's like, oh my God. I know. I feel. I don't even. We can't start talking about Brett Kavanaugh. I can't start talking about the Clintons. Because either. we'll never finish this podcast. Although Bill Clinton does show up in Should this Should we movie. do a political podcast? No. <laughs> we get in enough of it on here. Well, we could just record our late night conversations <laughs> when you're pacing around the house ranting. Bill Clinton is in this movie, obviously, yeah. because he was president and he picked her. Yeah. And I got to say. Uh, I feel like if you pick through the Clinton presidency, I find it doesn't hold up. But it is refreshing 
that Bill Clinton is being talked to about making a move that actually seemed progressive during his presidency. Well, yeah, and and he straight up admitted that she wasn't anyone he was looking at. Yeah. He didn't, I mean, she was on a list. Like, they talk about that, too. Like, she was on a list, but she was maybe number 20. But her husband, who was a great man. Yeah. But, okay. I foolishly thought that we could get through this quickly. Do you want me to quick do the history? Go ahead, yeah. Okay, so... Ruth Bader was born in 1935. Baby Ruth. Baby Ruth. <laughs> she has always loved doing boy things. Um, she was an only child, basically. Her sister passed away when she was really small. Did she play stickball in the streets? Yeah, they called her Kiki. Yeah, get it, Kiki. <laughs> she was close to her mom, um, but her mom passed away when Ruth was 17. And right when Ruth had gone to college, like her mom died the night before Ruth graduated high school. So she goes into college. I did want to talk about one cool thing that um, her, she has some friends that she's grown up with who are on here, who knew her in school and stuff. And they're talking about how her mom had these two rules that the two rules were to be a lady and to be independent. Yeah. Which I think really sum up kind of Ruth's whole like trajectory of her thing. Because the be a lady part was like, don't get caught up in the small things. Like don't go down to their level. And then the be, de- be Independent was like, you know, what did she say? If you meet Prince Charming and you get married and live happily ever after, that is amazing. But you should also be able to take care of yourself. I don't know. I got real up about this. I marked what point I started crying, you guys. I'll tell you. She wanted to be a lawyer and it wasn't okay to be a lawyer. Nobody supported her. her but her husband, Marty, supported her. And they met when they were real young. I wrote my notes, Ruth married Marty the hunk. So Ruth was shy. God, Ruth was so pretty. She was very shy. She She was was, super smart. Look, I don't want to object. I don't mean to objectify her. Oh, yeah. (laughs) She was very, very pretty. And I don't mean to objectify her today. Oh, yeah. (laughs) She's got that reader's hunch where she's hunched over. I mean, listen. That's from reading constantly. Oh, I know. From pouring over her papers constant. So when she met Marty, um, they were at Cornell. She was 17. He was 18. And at the time, most girls were there to find a husband. But she was there to get an education. She just happened to also meet this guy who was super charming. At Cornell, there was four men for every woman. For parents, Cornell was the ideal place to send a girl. (laughs) If she couldn't find her man there, she was hopeless. She said her first semester. My first semester at Cornell, I never did a repeat date. (laughs) Ruth Bader getting that dick Look, I'm not saying she couldn't have RBG That dick, 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 dick So while she was in school at Cornell She had this professor who made a huge impact on her Because that was during the Red Scare You want to talk about the Red Scare for a second? Yeah, uh, there was a big uh, The communists were taking over, Angela Well, no And uh, (laughs) No Well, there's a big fear because communism was on the rise globally And so politically They would crack down with um, Joe McCarthy With an assist by then young politician Robert Kennedy Mm would crack down and this dude like waved a laundry list. It was just a list of his fucking laundry, but claimed that he had names of known communists that infiltrated like entertainment and government. So there are all these like screenwriters and and people being brought up as potential communists, like having to defend themselves. And it was a it was a time of witch hunt <laughs> and uh, blatant suppression of thought. And in a country where people should have the First Amendment right to have a belief 
Absolutely. And so Ruth was trying to decide. She knew she wanted to be a lawyer, but she maybe hadn't picked where she was going yet, right? And so she had this professor who was like, look at this, look at what's happening. And she realized in that moment that these lawyers were doing exactly what you just said. They were defending these people's rights to be whoever they were supposed to be, you know, like to say what they wanted to do and do what they need to do and defending them against these false accusations and the fact that they were being discriminated against for whatever reason, they thought they were communists. And so she was like, I want to do that. I want to defend people who need defending. I want to help be a voice, right? Yeah. And so she knew lawyers could help. And so then, um, oh, then we cut to like, we cut to like her grandkids for a second, but like, oh, this is important. So she then went to Harvard Law. Yeah. Okay. So there's a bit of this there's some of this documentary where her granddaughter's kind of interviewing her, like asking her questions in front of the camera. They bring it up that her granddaughter also graduated from Harvard. It took until 2017. That was the first year that the Harvard graduating class was 50% women. Ruth graduated how long before that? I don't know. In the 50s? I can't do math right now. I don't have it written down. <laughs> but like it took that long until just last, like two years ago yeah. for there to be a 50% women. So that was kind of the point. Like when she graduated, she was one of nine women in a class of 500 yeah. men. She told about how she was denied entry to the library because they told her she wasn't allowed because she was a woman. She went to that school. She wasn't allowed to go in the library. Words too big for lady brains. She talked about how the dean would always hold a dinner. This uh, this made me so mad. The dean of Harvard would hold a dinner on the first year for like first year girls and make each one of them state why they thought they should be there and take the place of a man. And then we're talking about Ivy League institutions, self-congratulatory institutions that pat themselves on the back for being so smart and forward thinking. But you know what? You know what, Marty? Marty was like, nuh-uh. Everyone was intimidated by Ruth's intelligence, except Marty. Marty was like, you can do this. My wife's going to be on the fucking Harvard Law Review. Guess what? Second year, she did. I am a Brooklynite, born and bred. Snap. He loved her brain. He got boners over her brain. You've just been waiting to say boners over her brain. Yeah. Yeah. Well, he. You just want to talk about boners. He figured he loved her. He figuratively loved her brain and literally had a brain fetish. They didn't point that out in this movie. That's just something <laughs> I know about Marty. Okay. She went into Harvard with a child and she was taking care of her kid and she was taking care of the house. And she talked about for like her first year at Harvard, you know, she would be at school and she would do her work and she would study, study, study. And then at four o'clock, her babysitter would leave and she would take care of her baby until her baby went to bed. And then she would study, study, study more. But then Marty got sick. And so he was also in school. Like Marty was at Harvard too, but he was like a year ahead of her. In her third year of school, Maybe it's his third year. I don't know. But he got cancer. Yeah. And at that time, there was no chemotherapy. So he was going through radiation. He made it through fine. At this point in the movie, I'm like, oh, fuck. Marty's going to die. I know. Because I don't know. I don't know about Marty. I know. And that's why I immediately was like, he made it through. He was fine. But he actually makes it, uh, I think, past the 90s. Oh, yeah. So Marty lives. He does get cancer scares throughout his life. Yeah. But he does make it to like an elderly age. Yeah, he, he totally did. But, but that's when they kind of talk about how that was when she sort of 
learn to burn the candle at both ends because she was not only doing her work, taking care of her baby, taking care of Marty, taking care of the house. She was talking to Marty's schoolmates, helping him with his work, making sure he got everything turned in, even though he was doing so sickly because she wanted him to finish. Yeah. She wasn't going to let this be a bump in the road. But to make things easier, they moved up to new, so he could get started on his career. She went to uh, uh, Columbia Law School. He graduated. He got through it. And then they, she transferred. Yeah, she transferred so that he could start his business. Which is no fucking slouch in the law education department. So she graduated Columbia in 1959. No one would hire her. Yeah. Unemployable. Yeah. Uh, a Columbia law degree? <laughs> uh, goodbye. So then, like, kind of the women's liberation movement starts. Now, Ruth, she was teaching during this time. She's not much of a marcher, but that doesn't mean she ain't doing shit. Right, right. And she starts taking on sex discrimination cases, following in the footsteps of Thurgood Marshall, applying what he did for race in regards to gender discrimination. The first case, so basically this is one of those situations where... Frontiero versus Richardson. They heard about this case, um, Ruth and this other woman. I wish I knew her name. I'm terrible. They heard about it and they were like, oh, this is something we want to get involved in, right? Now, Frontiero, she'd entered the military... And she needed some money. But she noticed that the dude soldiers were getting something called a housing allowance. Yeah, she was married, just like these male soldiers. And they were getting a housing allowance, but she wasn't getting one. And that really would have helped her and her young husband. So she went up to some people. And at first they were like, no, you're lucky to even be here. And then so she went to a lawyer. A lawsuit begins. And lost in Alabama, which knocked it up to the Supreme Court. And this is when I started tearing up. Yeah. And this is some good stuff right here mm-hmm. because it, it played some speeches. Uh, but Ruth argued the history of female suppression to a fucking all-male Supreme Court. Ruth was very nervous, but she was very good at getting attention. Because she wasn't like a boisterous person, but she was patient and she knew how to say exactly what she needed to say. Well, and she made the comment about how they didn't really ask her a lot of questions. Because sometimes they'll stop and ask a question. They weren't doing that. And she said that she was a little bit afraid that it was because they were not listening, like they weren't paying attention. And then it occurred to her that maybe it was because she was telling them things they had never heard before, talking about women not being treated equally in all these various ways. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the court, women today face discrimination in employment as pervasive and more subtle than discrimination encountered by minority groups. Sex classifications imply a judgment of inferiority. The sex criterion stigmatizes when it is used to protect women from competing for higher paying jobs, promotions. It assumes that all women are preoccupied with home and children. These distinctions have a common effect. They help keep woman in her place, a place inferior to that occupied by men in our society. In asking the court to declare sex a suspect criterion, we urge a position forcibly stated in 1837 by Sarah Grimke, noted abolitionist and advocate of equal rights for men and women. She said, I ask no favor for my sex. All All I I ask ask of our brethren brethren is that they take their feet off our necks. Frontiero wins. 
But they don't know about your stress-filled game Baby on the way, mad bills to pay That's right, why you drink right. Tangeray So you can reminisce and wish You wasn't living so devilish I am a Brooklynite Born and bred So it was kind of a big deal But at the same time It was just the beginning Another case Weinberger versus Weisenfeld Oh, this one's great So this was a man whose wife Gave birth to a healthy baby boy But she passed away He was... The sole provider, he was a single father and he wanted to stay home with his baby for the first however many months of his life to take care of him because his mom wasn't there. And so he went to the social security office to try to get social security payout, right? Like a woman would be able to if her husband had died and he was denied. And their response was, no, these are for these delicate women, uh, not for you, Mr. Man. It was ridiculous But this was a case where Ruth jumped on this because she was like, this is a situation where she was able to use the discrimination between sexes to show that it was it was bad for everyone. Yes. It was bad for men as well. The specific expectations of gender roles. It's not that like a man going to work while a wife stays home is a bad thing. That's totally fine. It's that she's pointing out that in this instance where these forced gender roles are suppressing, they can't. They can't adjust around a tragedy. Yeah. Like this wife dies. I mean, the way I was brought up, like my father died when I was like an infant. My mother kind of wasn't getting much of the job done. I had to be raised by my grandmother, Mm -hmm. a single woman. My grandmother never called herself a feminist, but in her path coming up and raising children and grandchildren by herself, she kind of did embody that role and had to kind of learn to like fight for herself when people didn't give her any credo. Yeah. And that's just, it's so important to move beyond these gender roles. It's okay if one person works and another person just takes care of the kids. But the reason why those gender roles are bad, because it doesn't adjust to the realities of things in life. You can't have it one way and not the other. All you need is one person to love you in this world. That's all you fucking need, man. And that if you got that, you got more than anything. Mm-hmm. And I don't feel like I'm lesser or anything because I was raised by a woman. I mean, she was elderly. And that was, <laughs> I'm kidding. <laughs> she's a hard ass. Yeah, she. I mean, she's a bitch. <laughs> I didn't say that. You know, it's true. She'll never hear it. So th- this is interesting, too, because Ruth talked about in this part where she really saw herself as talking to these Supreme Court justices as though she were a kindergarten teacher. Yeah. Because she was explaining... These things that seem so obvious to these men who've never had these thoughts before. They're not in tune with what actually happens in reality. The reality of the situation is it's not always going to be one way. These are spoiled little man boys shoved into positions of power. She won five out of the six cases she argued in front of the Supreme Court. I am a Brooklynite, born and bred. Bump shots out the sunroof of Lexus coops, leave no witnesses. What you think this is? Ain't no amateurs here. I damage and tear MCs fear me. They too near not to hear me. There was a point where then Justice Judge Rehnquist, when uh, Ruth was arguing something, he said something along the lines of, won't you settle for Susan B. Anthony on the silver Patriarchy kills, Bob. You gotta, you gotta admit that was a, 
rip snorter. No, but okay, so this goes back to her mom's advice. She talked about this too. She didn't respond with anger to that. You don't respond with anger to that. You use it as more of a teaching moment. It's like, I don't know what she said exactly, but it's sort of the idea of like, well, if you want to give me that too. No, I'm not going to settle for that. But I mean, if you want to throw that in, sure. But also give me what I'm fucking asking for. Yeah. I don't know. It's just, it's one of those things where, again, it just seemed, it just, some of this stuff seems so obvious to us and even to so many people then, but it just, you have to convince a very, very, very small group of people to agree with you. Yeah. And this was groundbreaking changes happening. Enter Jimmy Carter. Jimmy Carter was president and he was determined to get women and people of color in our court system. In 1981, she was appointed to the D.C. Circuit Court. To the U.S. Court of Appeals, D.C. Circuit. This is also the part where Marty had been having a really super great career as a tax he, lawyer. He's a big time New York City tax attorney, which... That's a big deal. A tax attorney in the city of New York, that's no slouching ass position. People assumed that Ruth was going to be commuting, but no, Marty was like, no, we are moving. We're all going to stay together. And he kind of took a back seat at that point. He stayed home. He started cooking. He took care of the kids. Ruth was the one whose career took front and center. No, Marty was the cornball. Ruth is very <laughs> yeah. serious. I mean, Ruth is a giant law nerd. It can't be understated. She's a nerd. All this law shit, that is her passion. She loves doing that. It ain't no thing for her to like stay up all night reading law books. She loves that shit. When asking their kids, how, what was it like, like the roles? And they said, well, dad did the cooking and mom did the thinking. Apparently Ruth was the most horrible cook ever. Now Slick Willie, the time would come that Slick Willie, Bill Clinton. Bill Clinton, baby, heard him. He wanted Cuomo. For the Supreme Court. And he said that Ruth, I guess, seemed old. Well, Cuomo said no. He probably would have appointed Cuomo, and we might not know who Ruth is, now, Ruth if is, Cuomo had agreed. Ruth is not a big cheerleader for herself, but Marty could bring in the band. And like we mentioned a little bit earlier, like she would have been on the list, but she would have been like number 20 because she was in her 60s. There was a woman on the Supreme Court at this time. So she wouldn't have been the first woman on the Supreme Court. It's still not maybe the first person that you think of at the time, yeah. right? And there's a very young Bill Clinton interviewed in this documentary too, like some old footage of him when he was kind of appointing her. And he was talking about how she won him over in the first 15 minutes. We arranged for her to come to the White House. I wanted to see how her mind worked. So I engaged her in this conversation. And all of a sudden I wasn't the president interviewing her for the Supreme Court anymore. We were two people having an honest discussion about what's the best way in the moment and for the future to make law. She gets grilled as Supreme Court justices do. I think Orrin Hatch was, if I'm not, if I'm correct, the minority, Senate minority leader at the time. Orrin Hatch is the 18th most fuckable person in Utah, <laughs> as declared by uh, Mormon Hunks magazine. Oh God. Um, Have you ever read Mormon Hunks magazine? No. Is that like, like, is that like Hunks with hats, but it's like Hunks with wives or I can't make a good joke. Hunks tablets? with sister wives? They have like tablets. Hunks with tablets. Rocks. Tablets and, and we can. What do they believe in? You have to read it through a hat. <laughs> there you go. Hunks, Saved hunks it. with rocks and hats. <laughs> okay. This is when I literally like I wrote. I just wrote tears because when she. I was crying at this point because when she got up in front of the Supreme Court and she was being grilled, but she decided to do something that no one had ever done. She. She spoke literally at length about abortion rights and a woman's right to choose. And 
reproductive freedom, which was not something that anyone had ever done. And it wasn't expected for her to do that. But it was sort of like from the very beginning, Ruth was like, this is my agenda. And if you don't know me, let me real quick show you who I am, you know? And I really respect that a whole lot. But Oren did come to respect her. And he's actually interviewed in this movie. I didn't realize who that was, but now I understand. Well, I said he's like the 18th most fuckable Utah man, as declared by Mormon Hunk Magazine. I thought I should have known immediately who you were talking about. You got a subscription. (laughs) So she was confirmed 96 to 3. I am a Brooklynite. Born and bred. This was a pretty partisan time. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So that was kind of a huge deal. Sandra Day O'Connor had been appointed to the Supreme Court in 1981. And so... We call her S-Doc. S... S-Doc? Yeah, friends call her S-Doc. Okay, I didn't know you were a friend. Or Stock. Stock, okay, cool. (laughs) But she was like a conservative. Ruth was the first kind of more left-leaning Lady Justice. The second ever. We haven't talked about this yet, but there were like a few small like sort of animations. They would do certain things and they did this kind of cool thing where they showed you kind of rank from most conservative or least least conservative to most conservative. And they kind of showed you like through the years and as things changed, like where Ruth kind of fell in that, right? Because she was kind of like just a little bit left of center when she first joined. Because mm. there were actually some more liberal people on the court even than her at the time. That's not the case anymore. Yeah. But it was then. When we get into the history of these like cases that she tries, it's super interesting to me because I'm learning a lot of this stuff for the first time, admittedly. But it provides an interesting outline as to why she is important. I actually really remember this 1996 case. We're talking about this is her, this is a a big note in her Supreme Court history is this case in the Virginia Military Institute. And it's a case against VMI for excluding women in their ranks. This is a serious, real deal. Yeah. And it gets knocked up to the Supreme Court. Kelly Sullivan is the woman who wanted to get in. Yeah. And it worked. Some women can meet the physical standards VMI imposes on men are capable of all the activities required of VMI cadets and would want to attend VMI if they had the chance. This opinion does mark as presumptively invalid a law that denies to women equal opportunity to aspire, achieve, participate in, and contribute to society based on what they can do. I was dealing with a very worthy and formidable force at the other side of that bench. VMI, it's not just like you could just show up and they'll let you in. Oh, no. Man or woman, they have, they're looking for something very specific that they want. And now, this was the part of the movie, I know you cried a lot in this movie. This is the part where I kind of got a little choked Well, up. yeah, because they start talking about... When she goes back 20 years after that Oh, decision. God, yes. And I was like, wow, that is amazing because she went from being... What is the powers that be at VMI probably looked down on her to 20 years later, she's like an important part of the history of that school. Yeah, invited to speak at the graduation, right? And it's important to note, like, 
in American history, as we are all aware of all the problems in American history, and there are aspects in history where the military did reflect that. But often the problems within the military are often perpetrated more by the bureaucrats and politicians that tell the military what to do. When the military is put in a position to change, there might be some resistance, but the history of the military stepping up to properly change its statuses and move forward, the military has actually proven to be better at that than most political institutions. Absolutely. And during the Obama administration, when they cut out Don't Ask, Don't Tell, another bullshit Clinton policy. Yeah, that was... Ugh. And transgender folk were allowed to be in, which yes. they are, I believe, I don't know what that status is. Oh, I don't know It either. might be rejected now. But when Trump was complaining about that after the military had already been like, okay, we let these people in, it was politicians that were trying to undo that. It wasn't the military being like complaining about all these transgender people. The military is more than happy to take anybody, whether that be someone from another country or a transgender person or a homosexual person, as so long as they are allowed to take that person in, they will take that person in. So when you hear these like conservative politicians who want to undo this, Mm -hmm. bullshit within the military that's bureaucratic political bullshit yeah the military has already moved on because that's what they do they take their orders they adapt and they move forward and they've always been very good at that and when to see ruth come back to vmi 20 years later and she's given a very warm welcome mm -hmm. in an audience of men and women who go through a very very rigorous education when going to the Virginia Military Institute. You see that change in that 20 years. It goes from, what's this lady going, trying to do telling us who we can let in? Now it's respect because mm -hmm. they move forward. Uh, Ruth is showing off her collars. She got she likes those doily collars, right? You, you shouldn't make Ruth a collar. Yeah, so, so apparently Sandra and Ruth decided that because the men like they wore the robes that kind of went down so that they could have like a like a shirt and a tie under that they wanted to do something as well on their robes that just kind of went up more like a crew neck sort yeah. of like the guys have like a v-neck the ladies have like a crew neck i want to see a deep v on a, a supreme court justice <laughs> But yeah, she's got a bunch of ones. People people send them to her. She said that like Hawaii gave her one. Um, and she's got her descent collar. She mm -hmm. showed her descent collar. But again, that kind of rolls back up into that whole like how she's become like this icon yeah. now that people are wearing like pins of this descent collar. This is when we kind of find out how good a friend she is with Scalia. She was good at compartmentalizing. Mm -hmm. And these disagreements she's had, she, I mean, this is what justices do. They argue. Mm -hmm. And she, well, not argue like screaming. She was there to debate and make her points. And it wasn't until Bush v. Gore when that label of dissenter started to really rise. Yeah. I mean, she'd always been considered a more liberal justice. Bush v. Gore, there's a 600-vote separation in the state of Florida. And essentially, we know what happened the Supreme Court picked the president and they picked George W. Bush. Yeah. Uh, they didn't go by any popular vote because Gore probably would have won if it was based on that. The Supreme Court just making a decision. Now, Scalia, he'd always been a guy that claimed that he interpreted the Constitution in the way that the founding fathers interpreted the Constitution. At the time. Which is so flawed. Mm-hmm. Because we all assume we know exactly what everyone was thinking back in history. And, we don't know what people are thinking now. And like, yeah. I mean, truly. Yeah. Like, you can't... I mean, it should be constantly be up for interpretation because things are constantly changing. How Scalia can uh, interpret that through this issue, I don't know. But Ruth was like, no, this is a delicate thing. We should not be deciding 
elections. Look at the dissents right. and the strong language in the dissents. Justice Ginsburg, the court's conclusion that a recount is impractical is a prophecy the court's own judgment will not allow to be tested. Such an untested prophecy should not decide the presidency of the United States. I dissent. But we get George W. and everything works out great. <laughs> then, <laughs> then they talk about the Ledbetter versus Goodyear case, which was. I love this lady. Oh man, this lady. She's after a little while, a she'd worked at Goodyear for a while, and something happened where she saw one of the men's pay stubs. Anyway, she figured out, she found out that her pay was 40% less than the men doing the same job she was doing. And she'd been there like something like 20 years. A ridiculous amount of time. This is one of those things too that there's literally no argument for why that's okay. There's no argument. Angela, you're forgetting she has a vagina. Right. So they argued this at the Supreme Court level and she lost. Which yeah. is so crazy. And obviously Ruth dissented. I dissent. Ruth dissented and she basically said like, this is a terrible mistake. We have made a terrible mistake today. Like this is awful and shouldn't be this way. And she basically threw it at Congress. Yeah. And said, this is now up to Congress to make this shit right. Yeah. And they did. Yeah. Because they listened to Ruth. We see Obama with Lily. Lily Ledbetter. Yeah. Because he's he honors her because it was a significant role. And Lily Ledbetter is cool. She's hit the nail on the head because she definitely said they do not know what it's like in the real world. I'd like to go to dinner at Lily's house. She's like one of those lady Southerners that's just like, I don't need a man. Be like, let's talk about politics and eat cornbread. And I would love that. So Marty died. My dearest Ruth, you are the only person I have loved in my life. Setting aside a bit parents and kids and their kids. What a treat it has been to watch you progress to the very top of the legal world. I have admired and loved you almost since the day we first met at Cornell some 56 years ago. The time has come for me to take leave of life because the loss of quality now simply overwhelms. I hope you will support where I come out, but I understand you may not. I will not love you a job less. Very sad, and obviously she was very sad for a while, and she took some time to grieve, and then she went back to work because she's Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Another significant case is uh, Shelby County versus Holder. Which, essentially, this is the case that gutted the Voting Rights Act. And the then-majority conservative Supreme Court said that, oh, well, racism's cured now, right? Race-based voting discrimination still exists. This court's decision is like throwing away your umbrella in a rainstorm. Also, the redistricting is a problem. But in this last midterm, you probably heard a lot of stories about people who were had control over voting rolls, who were also running for public offices yeah, under the yeah, Republican yeah. tickets, or like these little laws being brought up where if there's a slight deviation from what they have on their records as opposed then to what denied. they written, then their whole vote gets thrown mm-hmm. out. That's because of this bullshit. Yeah. And literally, they wanted to gut the Voting Rights Act. The, the majority conservative Supreme Court was like, Racism doesn't exist. We got a black president. Cut to now that people are literally getting their their vote 
thrown out by the thousands. Why would they ask to do this if they didn't intend on doing this? There's literally no point to. There's no point to even talk about it. Just leave it on. It's it's doing its job. And that was the whole thing is like, they were like, we don't need this anymore because this isn't a thing that happens anymore. But the reason it didn't happen at that time was because we had this law protecting it. We had protection, some, and now there's none because they decided that they didn't need it anymore, which is exactly the opposite of thinking that we should do things now the way we said we should do them back when. Because they're like, oh yeah, back when we thought we needed this, but we don't need it anymore. Let's just throw it out the window. You know, the, the, it's like net neutrality because net neutrality could result in like more corporate control over not only the internet, but what people consume on the internet. Mm-hmm. And the argument against net neutrality Oh, but they won't do that. They make it like, oh, well, if it doesn't happen overnight, but that's not the way it works. No. They're going to do it over a span of a very long time. Yeah, and then all of a sudden you're like, oh, shit, what happened? If your argument is like, oh, they won't do that, that's not a fucking argument. No, it's not. And Ruth said so much in her dissent. This is when Notorious RBG was born. Step away with your fistfight ways, motherfucker. This ain't back in the days, but you don't hear me, though. Rationale is starting to fade. Mm-hmm. The country seems to be moving in a specific direction, and the Supreme Court lifetime appointments are now stuck in these positions. And now the country is all have to force to either pray for someone to never die or hope that people die in order for things to properly change. Burwell versus Hobby Lobby. Hobby Lobby doesn't want to pay for a lady's birth control for religious reasons. The ability of women to participate equally in the economic and social life of the nation has been facilitated by their ability to control their reproductive lives. Um, What happens is the Supreme Court decides that Hobby Lobby can exert its religious rights over individuals. I'm still mad about this one. I've not been to a Hobby Lobby since this happened. See, Hobby Lobby is not like a church. No. That employs with volunteers within its own church. It hires people. It pays private citizens. Private citizens. And of course, corporations are also now people. Thanks to the Citizens United case, another thing that Ruth uh, dissented on. Yeah. I dissent. These corporations, they can just be like, what about our religious rights? But the but the result of Citizens United and corporations being seen as people, because corporations have power. And if a corporation is considered a person, like a regular person is considered a person, well, there's a lot of evidence in our society that the more money and the more power you have, the more you can get away with. What is my personhood compared to the personhood of Walmart as a corporation? Can Walmart be convicted of like a crime? Like rape? Can Walmart be convicted of rape? I mean, it's a person, right? Can Walmart like as an entity sexually harass someone? How do you charge a whole corporation if it's considered a person? I know it's very complicated. A lot of this is centered around campaign donations and that's Mm -hmm. really what it was all about. Mm -hmm. But it just established that a corporatocracy has more control than a citizens in this country, which was already fucked even before Citizens United with arbitration laws and shit like that. Yeah, they didn't even get into that one. Yeah, Hobby Lobby won that case. Yeah, yeah, because she dissented again. I dissent. The documentarians, they like set it up for her and played her these clips of SNL. Kate McKinnon playing her. Who is one of my favorite people. Yeah, she's good. I love her. But yeah, Kate McKinnon playing Ruth Bader Ginsburg on SNL. I like my men like I like my decisions. Five, four. (gasps) That's a third degree Ginsburg. (laughs) (laughs) 
Ruth is just laughing it was and laughing. Charming. Yeah. And they said, "Well, do you think it's like you at all?" And she says, "Oh no, no." Except for the collar. <laughs> Which I thought was really cute. They also talk at this point about how she totally fell asleep at the State of the Union. Yeah. <laughs> now her granddaughter called her and was like, Bubby. <laughs> Bubby, you cannot fall asleep at the State of the Union. It's kind of a baller move. My team's the queen, stay clean. Triple beam, miracle dream. I'll be that. Catch a seat at all events bent. Jets and holsters, girls on shoulders. And all, well, but also the fact that she doesn't apologize for it. Yeah. She was like, we have to sit still up there. Yeah, it's boring. She's boring. like, it's boring. Those <laughs> things are boring. This is around when uh, Ruth shades on then-candidate Trump. I mean, In 2016. Yeah, yeah, which, I mean, you agree with, but you're a, you're a justice, you know. Let us shit on Trump. Sure, Ruth. sure. We know how you feel, Ruth. We can guess it. Yeah. But also, and this wasn't covered in the movie, and maybe because the filming was wrapped up, I can't remember the timeline of it. But on a tour, she was asked about Colin Kaepernick as he would kneel during the national anthem oh. to protest yeah, yeah. police injustice, specifically against minorities. Mm-hmm. And she was quoted as saying that she thought it was dumb and disrespectful that he would do that. I don't know if the timeline, were, I don't know, maybe they finished, they were in the editing mode when that happened. I can't remember exactly when she said that. Uh, I'm going to look that up real well, quick. Well, I will say that my notes pretty much stopped after this. 2016, she spoke out against Trump and people were surprised about it. She apologized for it. And then two days after Trump was elected, she was in an opera playing a duchess who got to have a speaking role. And she loved opera. We didn't talk about this either, but there's a couple clips of her at opera with like her whole family. Like she goes on these outings and her like grandkids will be there. Her kids will be there. Um, She goes on these trips with her family, traveling all over to see things experience other cultures she made the kaepernick statement around october of 2016 i think she voiced concern over trump before that it seems like i mean this movie didn't come out till 2018 i'm sure there it was on the editing room in 2017 Mm -hmm. i feel like they could have thrown that in there yes they could have and we've talked about this before with documentaries that there's almost never a documentary without a point of view Mm -hmm. this is a love letter to ruth bader ginsburg absolutely and even if they had had time to do that, they probably just went, we don't need to end on that. We don't want to end on that. So they didn't. I mean, maybe they didn't have time. They utilized the Trump comment as the controversial thing she said. Yeah. Which I agree. For a Supreme Court justice is controversial, I agree. But it's not really that controversial because you relate to it. Well, and you understand her feelings on it, at least. Yeah, and, and exactly. So you go like, oh, yes, I completely understand why she said that. But she shouldn't have said it. No. Like, she really shouldn't have. But the Kaepernick thing makes it, gives it more nuance and is a much more complicated issue mm-hmm. that could raise a lot more debate, you know? Yeah, that's but true. Because because this is a love letter uh, to Ruth Bader Ginsburg. The Trump thing, while you can understand why she shouldn't have said it, we can all relate to her feelings on it. But the Kaepernick thing is a little more divisive. I mean... Well, I think there's just a lot more layers that you have to go into if you bring... You can't just bring that up. Like you said, it's complicated. Who knows? Which is why it should be in there. I do agree. I think we pretty much end on more Ruth laughing at Kate McKinnon playing her. I think so, yeah. And that's, that's the movie, pretty much. I am a Brooklynite. Born and bred. The necklace, the bracelet, the benzo, she laced it. Cribbo got it. Interior decorated. Angela, we don't rate in a star rating scale. You think in 2019 I'd soften up on stars, but no, they're still whores. <laughs> oh, God. We rate in a hurt I'm going to get a tattoo of a star. What'd you do? 
How you feel about that? I'd probably take a what magic it, marker and color over it. What if I get it? it right in the middle of my forehead? I dare you. I <laughs> fucking dare you. Yeah, you should no, do I that. No, I won't do that. I won't do that. Right in the center of my chest, like right between my boobs. It's your body, babe. <laughs> I love you for that. I won't do it, but yes. We rate in a Herzog rating scale. I'm going to mm-hmm. give this one through five Herzogs. You're going to give this one through five Herzogs. Combine them for best out of 10 Herzogs. Now, I said going into this February, we're covering movies this month that we missed in 2018. Some movies that made some critics lists, and I'm excited to get to a lot of movies in here. But I told myself, you know what? I want to grade these movies heavy. Mm-hmm. We're going, we're, we're well into our second year of the podcast now. Mm-hmm. And, you know, as we watch more documentaries, our brains get bigger, right? The way we look at films start to adapt and change. I imagine if we went piece by piece, if I went piece by piece, so a lot of the movies we saw last year, I imagine I would like maybe uh, subtract a star here, maybe add a star there. Definitely. I'm sure I would change my vote on a lot of movies we saw last year. So from here on, I'm considering my ratings to be a little more evolved, mm-hmm. a little more thoughtful. I thought this was a good movie. I did not think it was a five hundred song movie. No, I don't either. And I think I more than covered throughout this episode kind of why I thought maybe it shouldn't be. I totally respect Ruth Bader Ginsburg. I am happy she is in the Supreme Court right now because we do need her in it right now. I definitely respect her fucking intelligence for sure. was very happy to learn the things I did and the stuff coming up. She she did so much good even before she went into the Supreme Court. And that stuff impressed the hell out of me and kind of made me kind of like her a little more mm-hmm. in that respect. But the overt love letter aspect of it, I know it's a reflection of the times. It's not really something that comes out of nowhere. We know why people are hanging a lot of hope onto Ruth Bader Ginsburg. It's obvious. But it's just like a reflection of the entrenched nature of the times that we're in right now. I hope we can get out of it. But but because it reflects that entrenched nature, in a way, it kind of bums me out at the same yeah. time. Because of what that means. That fandom means that she is like the last line of defense, but she's also, well, she's not the last line of defense. There's people out in the world on the streets who are out there protesting every day. They're the last line of defense. But you know what I mean. Mm-hmm. Like I said, when Brett Kavanaugh had his meltdown, and he, said, and he claimed it was all like a Clinton conspiracy, which is so... I feel like people within the political circles, I I feel like they assume that certain things mean more than they really do out in the real world. He's just crying Clinton. Amongst the base. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Because at this point, Hillary did not win that election. I mean, I know if you watch Fox News, you might not think Hillary lost that election because (laughs) they need a boogie person. It's hard to admit when you're in a position of power. I like that you said boogie person. Boogie person. (laughs) I love it. I'm trying to keep it proggy. I love it. But Fox News, you know, it can't handle it. It's now state media. The reflections and the desires of people out in America, it doesn't match what's played out within these circles. So when Brett Kavanaugh's like, it's a Clinton conspiracy. He wasn't even Supreme Court justice yet. That's a problem in the same way that Ruth saying Trump would be a bad president is a problem. But he gets sworn in. So that's a double standard right fucking Well, there. yeah. I mean, and she said what she said after she was already there. She'd been there for a long time. She recognized she made a mistake. Him saying it before he was even sworn in should have been a giant red flag. A case was brought before the current Supreme Court uh, that would have gutted Planned Parenthood. Mm-hmm. And the Supreme Court refused to hear it. Mm-hmm. Kavanaugh was one of those who refused to hear it. Which is, Yeah, I do know that. I, uh, I mean, I'm not making any statement either way, but I am grateful that that scenario happened in that way yeah 
So I guess we'll just, it is what it is. We'll see what it is going forward. I didn't mean to go off on that tangent. I guess the point I'm trying to say is that I think this is a 3.75 documentary. Okay. That totally makes sense. Sorry for that rant. It's okay. I totally understand. Okay. Um, The love letter aspect of the movie is fun at times, but I didn't really need it to be fun. The first half of the movie I thought was excellent. Showing all the pictures of when she was younger, showing these people from her life, talking about her, her childhood friends, these other justices that she worked with, showing photos of like her and Marty. And, and the whole history bit was amazing. But it does sort of turn this point at the end, like the last maybe quarter of the movie, when they do start talking about the notorious B- uh, RBG. I'm never going to say that right. I'm never going to say it right. The notorious RBG that just gets like a little too circusy for me. It becomes immensely clear at that moment that like we are in a society that is all about social media and totally meme culture mm. and... You know, showing these photos, I think it showed this one photo a bunch, like three or four times of like Ruth Bader Ginsburg face on like a Wonder Woman body. And I get it. Like I get the wanting this person to be or needing someone to point to to be like sort of your champion. Right. I get that. It just felt a little cheesy. It did pull up my heartstrings, but I am that kind of person. Like you can get me with that. I kind of wish that There'd been even more time talking more specifically about these cases. Or again, like you said, talking about, you know, the stuff that they possibly left out. Like, talk about more of the times that she might have been wrong. She's a person just like any other person. And they did talk about times that she made mistakes. But like you said, the one time they really talked about her making a mistake was one that her fans are going to be able to understand and are going to defend her against. And it it discussed how in the 90s, that she would often make concessions to get things later. Like, get into what she conceded. Like, that'd be interesting. Yeah. I mean, they talked about when she was younger, she kind of played a long game, right? Like, you very strategically picking different things. But then they did sort of kind of stop talking about that. I mean, I know those workout scenes are cute. But, like, you know, cut out one of those and give us a little more history. I'm not against it. I mean, I was personally just, like, really glad to know that she's still going to see a trainer and she's, like, keeping herself healthy. Because, again, that means she might be around for a while, which would be amazing. Um, Is she doing okay, by the way? She just had a surgery as of this recording. But from what I last I heard, she's recovering very nice. And is actually, I think, already back at work or about. I mean, if the doctor will let her, she will be. But I think I agree because I was thinking four, but I don't think it's quite a four. I agree that we should be a little more discerning these days. And I tend to rate things pretty high. RBG is a human. She makes mistakes. And she says things like the Kaepernick thing that I personally disagree with. Mm -hmm. But that doesn't mean that we don't respect her. I'm so glad I watched it because I didn't know these things. I didn't know as much about the history of these cases that meant so much as I should have. I do remember I do remember that 1996 Virginia military. I remember that happening. I paid attention to that. I knew about the hobby. I knew about the more recent stuff, but like those things that she was doing when she was out there arguing these cases herself, I didn't know about a lot of that. Um, and I'm glad that I know it now. And I'm glad that I know more about her. And I respect her immensely as well. 3.75. When RBG was coming up, things were a lot more divided, especially by gender and shit. Yeah. She did not get to where she is now by being fearful and reactionary. No. So let's keep that in mind. You take your 3.75. I take my 3.75. That equals uh, 7.5. Seven point five out of ten Herzogs for RBG, Bessie West, and Julie Cohen. Above average score, definitely. And it was an above average documentary. Yeah. I really liked it a lot. We had a pre-recorded episode already 
But this is kind of the first one we recorded in 2019. It sure is. And uh, and I, I love you. Thank you. I love you too. RBG by Betsy West and Julie Cohen, 7.5 out of 10 hertz. Do you tell everybody that you love them at the end of the episodes? No. Oh, cool. Just kidding. I knew that. Sometimes I, just... I tell the listeners I love them. Oh, you should. Because I love them too. I do. Every single one. All right, Focals. Keep on dissenting. Keep on docking. Not having to sneeze. I'm not saying not sneezing. I mean, not having to sneeze. Mm -hmm. If I could pick something that is just always fine. Mm. Well... I'd pick my weight or something. Yeah, I would pick. I would pick. But if it's like weight. a feeling to never have again, I just want to never feel nauseous. Or butthole stuff. <laughs> yeah, that's pretty gross. Hemorrhoids and shit. You should blow your nose. Maybe you're gonna be sniffly on the pod. Where notorious RBG came from? <laughs> it, it's it was the rapper, the notorious B.I.G. People ask me, don't you feel uncomfortable being? With a name like the notorious B.I.G. And why should I feel uncomfortable? We have a lot in common. We were both born and bred in Brooklyn, New York. 50 inch screen, money green, leather sofa. Got two rides, a limousine with a chauffeur. Phone bill about two G's flat. No need to worry, my accountant handles that. And my whole crew is lounging. Celebrating every day, no more public housing. Thinking back on my one room shack, now my mom pimps the act.